So when it comes to saltwater striper versus freshwater landlocked striper, what, what do you think? Which one pulls harder? Well, there's no question, you know, a saltwater striper, because it's living in current all the time with tide. And then I guess if we had if we had some steelhead down here in the SEC, they'd probably pull even harder. Is that right? Uh, there's no question, you know. <laughs> Is a hot dog a sandwich? You know, I was only asked that question once before in my lifetime. Well, I started fishing probably when I was as young as probably four years old. My, uh, my father was a big outdoor guy, pretty avid fisherman. And so I, I remember as young as about four years old, he would take me out whether we were on a lake. We lived growing up in Brooklyn, New York in salt water near the Atlantic Ocean. So I remember fishing off piers like Coney Island, the Steeplechase Pier. Probably one of my earliest memories of fishing for uh, tinker mackerel and whiting off the pier back in the early 60s. That's how I started fishing. So I was a conventional guy starting out, you know, spinning rods and open face reels and stuff like that that's that's how i kind of cut my teeth on fishing for the most part as as a youngster and then as i got older because we lived within walking distance of gravesend bay which was the entrance to new york harbor as i got older i would just leave my home where i grew up and we lived in a 16-story tenement with 160 families i would take the elevator down with my fishing pole and walk about a half a mile to the water's edge and cast for bluefish weak fish and striped bass on artificials I did that during my early teenage years, you know, 13, 14, 15. Uh, we lived in an area that was probably about four or five miles away from Sheepshead Bay, which is a very famous port where multiple headboats or fishing boats for hire where you'd go out and, you know, 20 or 30 or 50 guys would go out and pay for a day to go fishing and they'd take you out and You'd fish on what we called a headboat, or back in New York, we called them party boats. And so when I was a kid, I used to ride my bike. Every chance I'd get to go into Sheepshead Bay when the boats came in to see what how, which boat was doing well. And uh, I would then, you know, on the weekends when I, was, when I could afford to, I had a paper route. I'd save all my money and go out on those headboats to fish and bring home fluke and blackfish and all sorts of things that we would take home and eat and it was just uh that's that's how we did it in new york so how far were you from like breezy point light so breezy point for me that i i didn't start fishing breezy until i was done with college but i'm probably about say i was probably about eight miles from breezy point so i grew up in brooklyn and breezy point is actually in queens you have to go over the marine parkway bridge and get to Breezy Point, and uh, I didn't really start fishing Breezy Point, uh, which was a jetty that started, that was the start, the inlet to Jamaica Bay. And I couldn't get there until I had a four-wheel drive vehicle, because the only way you could get to the Breezy Point jetty was to get on a four-wheel drive vehicle, or what we called a beach buggy at the time, drive out in about, drive out about two miles on soft sand, and get out and then, you know, dress up and put on our skins and our cleated boots. And uh, we'd walk out about 200, 250 feet to the tip of the jetty. And it was not a flat jetty. These are not rocks where you're like walking one rock to the next. These are rocks that are pointed and jagged. And it was really quite a climb to get out to the tip of the jetty. And the crazy part was there was a low point about halfway out 
it was a low section that you had to time the waves to get from the low section back out into the, you know, into a higher part. And if the wind was blowing east at 10 to 15 miles an hour or more, that jetty would get absolutely covered in spray and waves. And, and the nastier, the snottier the fishing, you know, the, the nastier or snottier that the weather got, the better the fishing was on that jetty. Oh, I bet. You know, we used to time the tides and get out there. And, and the craziest part of this, David, is we did most of our jetty fishing. The guys that if you were, if you had a hankering to catch a big striped bass, in New York City, you fished the tip of Breezy Point Jetty, and you did it in the middle of the night. You walked out there at dark, and you walked back off the jetty before first light. So nobody knew what you were doing. It was very quiet, very secretive. There was probably 15 or 20 guys that did it, and it was there was no talk about what was going on on that thing. It was all hush-hush. So you sure didn't come out there with a big old flashlight, did you? You, you, you know, we wore a headlight. You had to wear a headlight to get out. Okay, but you know, you were you tried to keep not use that headlight unless you were changing lures. Um, you used the headlight just to walk out and to walk back in. Other than that, you kept that headlight off as much as you possibly could. You, the last thing you wanted to do is well, listen. You drive out there. Let's say there were six or eight guys out on the tip of the jetty, and we fished rotation at the tip. One guy would make a cast, let line out, move to the, and keep moving to the right. The next guy would make a cast. He'd start opening his, his open face reel up, letting line out. We'd let our back long line go out about 200 feet, and then we'd start reeling it in from the rip, cast it out into the rip, mm. let the rip take that, that line all the way out with our big 10- and 12-inch long wooden lures and reel them back in slowly. And, and we fished rotation, but, you know, nobody talked about, you know, what we were doing then. And, you know, if there were six or eight guys on the tip of the jetty, I can promise you that morning there'd be 30 guys on the beach. So you wanted to get off the jetty before first light so that the guys coming out to fish the beach didn't know what you were doing that <laughs> night on the jetty. It, everything was just super secretive back then. Now, it's a little different now. No, I was going to say, now with the Internet, that's all changed. Welcome into Southeastern Fly. I'm your host, David Perry. Today we're gonna we're gonna talk about stripers and a little bit about carp. You can find us at southeasternfly.com there as well as on Instagram and Facebook. You can subscribe to this podcast, uh, Southeastern Fly, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeart, Google Podcasts, Spotify. We really enjoy your positive comments and even your positive ratings. That really helps us out and kind of gives us an idea of, of what's going on as far as how we're how we're doing on this. In this episode, we're going to talk in depth about landlocked stripers on the fly, and we're also going to talk about carp on the fly. Where we'll find the stripers, we're going to be talking about Lake Lanier, just, just above Atlanta, Lake Altoona, which is down in I-75, just above Atlanta, as well as the Chattahoochee River. So to talk about stripers and carp uh, on the fly, we're going to talk to fly fishing guide, writer, the author of Fly Fishing for Freshwater Striped Bass, which is uh, being written right now, uh, fly tire and all-around fishy guy. Give it up for Henry Cowan. Well, I appreciate you having me. You know that old, not only, I'm the, not only am I a member of the Hair Club for Men, I'm the president. Not only am I <laughs> on the podcast today, I also listen to your podcast. I am a fan. Wow, thanks. I appreciate that. I know that all the other guests, I mean, we've had some really cool guests in here and yours, you and I talked about it before we, we hit the record button and your story 
starting off in New York City, fishing for saltwater stripers, all the way down to come into Atlanta, start your own your own guide service down there, do all the things that you've done within the fly fishing community from Brooklyn, Jamaica Bay, up through Connecticut, up the East Coast, all the way down into Alatoona and Lake Lanier and the, and the Hooch, uh, the upper part of the Hooch. I mean, just you've done a lot of things. And I've, I've honestly, I've kept up with you ever since we started doing this and before. I, I, we have striper around, you know, in Middle Tennessee as well. So it seemed like whenever I was researching stripers, stuff like that, and even carp some, um, your name would come up to people I would talk to, which made me go to henrycowanflyfishing.com and check out what you had online. I appreciate you agreeing to do this and giving us some help on on these two topics here because I think they're important, especially in the southeast where we have such a wide, there's such a wide variety of, of species to go for here. I would say from Kentucky out to, you know, the, the eastern edge of Texas down into Florida, Georgia, that that's kind of, to me, that's the southeast uh, you could grab in a little bit of Missouri in that as well. These striper and these carp, they're prevalent around here. The first question that I've got here, and this is going to be more conversational, but I want to kick it off with a, with a question or two. So do start do saltwater striper pull harder than freshwater striper? And this, this question really comes from the steelhead guys. They all want to say, you know, out west in Washington, if the if a steelhead doesn't touch salt water, it's not a real steelhead, which I don't know. They could fish for one of those for catch one every three months and, and act like they're happy. Or you could go up around Michigan or somewhere else like that and, and catch them in freshwater coming off the Great Lakes. I don't know how you really tell the difference. Maybe there's a difference. Maybe you're not. I can tell you right now how steelhead, how you know which one's going to pull harder. Yeah. It's, it's, it's obvious to me. I mean, you just look at the Pac-12 and the Big Ten. The Big Ten would kick the Pac-12's butt every time. Those steelhead in Michigan got to be harder pullers. <laughs> that's that's probably the best answer I've ever had right there. That's fantastic. And probably true, too. Uh, definitely true in the football realm. And then I guess if we had if we had some steelhead down here in the SEC, they would probably pull even harder. Is that right? Uh, there's no question, you know. <laughs> So when it comes to saltwater striper versus freshwater landlocked striper, what, what do you think? Which one pulls harder? Well, there's no question, you know, a saltwater striper, because it's living in current all the time with tides, is a harder fighting fish as opposed to those of the ones in the lakes. But, you know, when those stripers are in the river and you've got, a, you know, those stripers in the Chattahoochee River probably pull pretty darn close to a saltwater striper just because there's current. You know, in the lake, there's very, we have current in the lake, but not the same. It's not like when you go into the Chattahoochee and they're generating and, you know, you've got what, what appears to be a two knot current going. Um, and in salt water, you can always, when the tides are ripping, you can be in a, in a rip somewhere where that water is flying and you've got a two knot current in there. But in a lake, they just don't have the current to pull quite as hard as the ones in the rivers or the ones in salt water. So I would say, while all three of them pull really, really well, the big difference is going to be a saltwater striper and a, and a striper in a freshwater river is going to feel like you hooked your fly on to the back of a Toyota Tundra. And the one, the, the one in the lake is going to be like you, you, you put it to a Tacoma instead of a tundra that's going to be the difference they all pull pretty good though so so the one in the lake i mean they don't have to work quite as hard so maybe they gain a little muscle a little more mass i guess i should say a little quicker yeah, they're maybe. definitely fatter i mean if you look at the lake fish they've got big bellies there's no question that you know jerry seinfeld once said do you know why most fish are skinny why's that because they eat fish <laughs> anyway huh. that's, <laughs> that's, that's if you're a seinfeld guy it's good stuff but <laughs> yeah great. 
they're, um, you know, the ones in the lake, the, the thing about the, the stripers in freshwater is they're just their girth in, in, especially in lakes, even more so than in rivers, their girths are bigger just because it's so much easier for them to catch their prey. You know, they don't work nearly as hard. They're landlocked, so they're always there. They're always going to find. They don't have to chase up and down the coast looking for their next meal and follow, you know, the bait fish migrations. In a, in a lake, they just go around in circles at some point, just, you know, eating what they want. That's why they get so grotesquely wide in a lake as opposed to the ones you see in, a, in the salt water. But pound for pound, a saltwater fish will probably pull a little tougher than a freshwater fish. And that big, fat, slobby striper in the lake makes for a really good photo, doesn't it? Oh, it's a great photo. <laughs> but I'll tell you, the other thing is the ones on the salt live longer than the ones in the lake. Our lake fish just don't last as long. I don't know if it has to do with water quality or what, but a striper in a lake will live 12, 13, maybe 14 years in most lakes. And in salt water, those things can live 18, 20 years, you know, they can go a lot longer. So that could go back to maybe they're just, you know, not in as good a shape, that sort of thing, too. I guess somewhere somebody's probably done a study of, to, to kind of lead them into the direction of thinking that maybe it's the shape, maybe it's maybe it's the water quality. It could be a number of things. I don't think there's yeah. really tough to nail that one down, isn't it? It is. A lot of it is based on water quality. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, the life cycle of a striper, a lot of it is based on its water quality. Colder water, that's why the fish, in my opinion, are bigger in Kentucky and Tennessee than they are, say, in Georgia and South Carolina. You know, you guys just have colder, better water quality there for those fish to get bigger. Same thing in California, Northern California. Those yeah. fish get enormous. David, if you look at state, if you look at line class records for freshwater fish, if that species lives in California as well as anywhere else in the United States, the likelihood is you're going to see many of the world records held in California. And that's just colder water, a little bit cooler water, good water quality, and that that's seems to be what does it, at least from what I've what I understand. Although I will tell you, not that we're not that we're here talking spotted bass, but Lake Lanier does have we do own two line class spotted bass records on our lake. Just for a side note. So there's a little bit more variety. Oh yeah, we have a great spotted bass fishery and you know, you're in Tennessee, so you guys up there when we want to talk about what's a great bass fishery, you guys love your smallmouth. Absolutely, yes. We don't have a smallmouth fishery to speak of in Georgia. We have shoal bass and we have Kentucky spotted bass, and our spotted bass looks like a largemouth and acts and fights just like a smallmouth. Uh, the only difference is he jumps like a largemouth. Oh, nice. So if, if smallmouth jumped the way a largemouth jumped, what a species that would be. That'd be almost the ultimate. They just they just pull a lot, you know? They pull hard. Yeah. And the spotted bass is kind of the, the go-between between the smallmouth and the largemouth. Got a little bit of a combination there. So you fish from like New York and Upper East Coast all the way down to Georgia. So I've got kind of a non-fishing related question, but something that I really need, we really need an answer to. Uh, and, and being from New York, you, you probably, I don't want to say you're an expert in this on this topic, but I would say that you've probably got a really strong opinion one way or the other. Is a hot dog a sandwich? You know, I was only asked that question once before in my lifetime. And I, I will answer that and tell you unequivocally, it is not a sandwich. The, the greatest hot dog on the, on the face of the earth comes really close to where I grew up, Nathan's Famous 
which oh, is yeah. a Coney Island dog. Uh-huh. That's a, that's, I, I grew up a bike ride away from Nathan's Famous. And, you know, a hot dog is, you can call it a lot of things, but it's not it's not a sandwich. I mean, let me ask you this. Is a burger a sandwich? No. Yeah, I don't think a hot dog or a burger is. They get their own category. They get their own spot on a menu. They really do. Yeah. They really do. So I would have to say, no, a, a hot dog is not a sandwich. And no, you cannot put ketchup on a hot dog. Oh, that's, see, uh. that's the other thing. You can't, I mean, it's mustard and sauerkraut and onions and relish. And you want, you know, if you want to put coleslaw on a dog, that's fine. But a Chicago hot dog's got the kitchen sink with pickles and everything. A New York dog, you know, when you think, when you think about pizza, New York is thin crust. Chicago is deep dish. New York dogs are basically... You know, mustard and either sauerkraut and onions, where the, the Chicago dog is, you know, usually relish and, and you know, peppers and yeah, pickles yeah. and, you know, on a poppy-seeded poppy bun. Seed, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that's, that's, that's the way they do it in Chicago. Just for clarification here, I haven't eaten dinner yet, so I'm a little bit, I mean, the hot dog question is, is really sticking with me pretty good. I got you. <laughs> so your dad let's go ahead and start back here uh that's that's a fun question and I've, I've pretty much asked everybody that uh that we've interviewed this is just the first time that i think it's probably going to make the cut on the recording so so your dad started you fishing you started in the in the in the northeast i've got a so my dad actually he helped me along as well just like probably a lot of folks did parents grandparents aunts uncles stuff like that help us but it really took a friend of mine to get me into fly fishing and i went through like i was i was living in knoxville whenever i really started back I fished a little bit as a kid, fly fished a little bit as a kid, although I never was really any good at it. You know how it is when you're a kid, you you fish with a spinning rod and then you pick up the fly rod. You don't catch as many fish. You really need somebody there to kind of coach you along and, and help you out. That came later in my life, fishing in the Smokies with my friend Pat, which I've talked about many, many times whenever I do interviews or presentations. Pat's name comes up quite a bit, and I was just wondering, is there anybody that, that maybe started with you that kind of helped you along whenever you first really got into it? You know, it's funny you say that. I think every everybody has a Pat out there somewhere, whoever it is. I, you know, I my dad fly-fished a little bit for largemouth and uh, pickerel on, on a lake up in upstate New York in the Catskill Mountains, and so I used to watch him do it, but I had really very little interest, and it was when I moved. I, I was married and moved to Connecticut in uh 1988 and uh around late around 89 or 90 is when i saw three young guys down on the beach one day and we were standing not far from one another on a blitz where the stripers were just coming into the into the shoreline we were in a pair of waders and i was throwing a spinning rod with a bucktail and these three teenagers come down with fly rods and they were all doubled up and stuff, but theirs looked so, what they were doing looked like so much fun. I decided I'm going to pick it up. And eventually that's how I really started fly fishing was when I picked up saltwater fly fishing in Connecticut. I know most people start fly fishing either on a brim pond or in a stream for trout. And I actually did it in salt and then eventually fell in love with trout fishing. But over the next year or two, I just tried to teach myself as much as I could. And I got better at it and casting better and tying flies this and that and i ran into a a guy on one of the in the peril waders one day at one of our spots and his name was scott smith and everybody knew scott because he'd always introduce himself as hi i'm scott smith from bethel connecticut i mean the, the, you know i don't introduce myself as hi i'm henry cowan from brooklyn new york i would just say hi i'm henry but this guy anybody he met anywhere hi i'm scott smith from bethel connecticut and so i met scott and scott and i hit it off and scott is probably 
to this day, I would have to say the best angler I have ever fished with. And that takes into account having, you know, fished in a boat several times with the likes of Lefty Cray and other luminaries in our, in our sport. And I'm telling you that Scott Smith was the greatest angler I've ever fished with. And the only way I can describe this, David, is when you're fishing and you're in a boat and you hook a fish and you want to grab the leader and lift the fish up and bring them in the boat. Most of the time, the minute you lift the fish out of the water, the fish wiggles like crazy, throws the hook, the fish hits the side of the boat, the gunnel, and usually falls back in the water. And with Scott Smith, (laughs) the fish always fell in the boat. This guy just had a charm over his head. I was in, I'd been fishing trout with him and stripers with him and bluefin, baby bluefin, tuna, and just all over the place, fishing all different things, smallmouth, you name it. We fished for a lot of things together. It was as if he had gills tucked under his ear. Um, he was just unbelievable the way he would figure stuff out. And I can't tell you how many times I was in a trout stream in Croton, fishing the Croton River in New York State. And there's eight or 10 people were all spread out and fishing in the river. And every now and then someone would catch a fish. And Scott was catching a fish literally every other cast. He was just that good. And uh, so interestingly enough, Scott grew up fishing in Connecticut and befriended as a young man, a guy by the name of Brian Kershaw. You may not know the name Brian Kershaw, but Brian Kershaw from Connecticut eventually is known as one of the only anglers to ever win the Bassmaster Tournament, the Classic, as an amateur. Fishing, so you know that in the Bassmaster Classics, they allow four amateurs in along with the other, whatever it is, 48 or 52 anglers that are all professionals. Yeah, right. They allow four amateurs in, and Brian won the Classic as an amateur, and then a couple of years later was killed in a plane crash in North Carolina and died at a very young age. Mm. I would say he couldn't have been 27 or 26 or 28. He was a young guy. But Scott grew up fishing with him. And, you know, when you think about this, Dave, I'm I'm sure you played sports as a young guy. When you play with people that are better than you, you become better. Absolutely. A hundred percent. That is so true. hundred percent, right? Yes. And so Scott was learned, honed his fishing skills with what was eventually a Bassmaster Classic angler. So he learned the instincts of what it takes to be a great fisherman. And I got to fish with Scott for a number of years, and I'm sure that helped me immensely. So did you fish with him up the north coast, up up in the northeast? Yes, I, I did. He he was in Connecticut with me. We we fished together probably three days a week on average. <laughs> Your story is so similar to mine, but mine mine was obviously around Knoxville and the Smokies and then the Clinch and Teleco, Sitico, the Holston, those areas there. It started out as a Friday afternoon thing, then a Friday afternoon and then early Saturday morning and then Sunday afternoon after church. I mean, it's very... <laughs> three days a week and then if we could sneak out you know during the week we would go you know either either late after we both got off of work or you know sometimes early in the morning then go in late i mean truly becoming fishing bums and that's what it sounds like you and scott were yeah no question (laughs) i'll never forget there was one i'll never forget this we were out in montauk i'm sure you've heard of the fabled montauk new york which is the most east end of new york state um and montauk point and its lighthouse uh, is one of the best striper fisheries on the entire East Coast, especially when they make their fall migration running north back down 
towards the Chesapeake Bay and the Hudson River. All those fish that are up from Nova Scotia down to Maine and Massachusetts and Rhode Island, they all have to go around Montauk Point. They come out of their rivers and estuaries, and they all have to come around Montauk Point, and you'll see them by the thousands. Back in the day, we'd see just gigantic schools of striped bass on the surface. I'll never forget, we were on a on his boat on Scott's boat and we were fishing and there must have been about 15 to 20 other boats all around us and we had stripers on the surface but they weren't in a big pot of, of fish on top they were spread out like every five feet four four five six feet you'd see a, a splash and they were actually coming up and porpoising with their backs out of the water the way you see a trout taking a merger versus a dry fly you don't see their face. You see mm-hmm. their backs come up. Right. And that's what we were seeing the stripers do. And all these professional guides around us, and nobody was catching a fish. And Scott and I were doubled up every single cast. We had, we had the local Montauk guides coming up to us going, all right, you guys got to tell us what you're doing. <laughs> and, and Scott was the one that figured it out that day. And I I had the same thing happen up in Rhode Island with Scott. We were fishing the uh, June squid run where the squid would get up onto the, um, into the rips of Rhode Island and stripers by the thousands would come in there. And sometimes they were finicky and we were out there on one of the rips one day and there had to be eight or 10 other boats. And, you know, one boat would catch a fish every now and then. And Scott and I were just completely doubled up for 45 minutes to an hour. Wow. We had guys just scratching their head, looking at us like, what are we doing? You know, what are <laughs> these guys doing? And I would love to take credit. I was just in the boat catching fish. Scott figured the whole thing out. And what it teaches you as an angler is to what to pay attention to. I want to bring it down into Georgia. So I want to break this up in freshwater versus saltwater stripers. Colors on flies. So can I take the same fly that I use up there and bring it down here and catch fish? Or would I have to change something out? 100%. You know, the theory behind it is the same. Match the hatch. Just like with trout fishing. Uh You know, the only difference is, you know, when stripers are eating big menhaden or what we call bunker. Right. You know, and they're on 12 and 13 and 14 inch bunker. You can throw a 10 inch fly or bigger and catch fish. But if you're going to throw a three inch clouser at those fish the likelihood is you're not going to hook up, okay? And conversely, if the fish are eating two-inch-long rain bait, which are, you know, bay anchovies on the salt, and you throw a, you know, a five-inch or a six-inch game changer or a deceiver that's four inches long, the likelihood is you're not going to hook up. Matter of fact, I remember many, many, many years ago, I had a conversation talking to Lefty. And Lefty and I were very, very close. We, we used to speak you know, probably every two to three weeks, we'd have a, a, a half an hour chat on the on the telephone, just talking about whatever. And I remember asking him one time, I said, Lefty, what's the, what's the most difficult fish you ever had to target? Having fished all over the world in so many different fisheries, he didn't even think about it. He said to me, Henry, when striped bass are on small, I mean, really small bait, that is the toughest fish I think I ever had a fish to just consistently. Stripers are, they're a magnificent game fish. They can be tough. They can absolutely be tough. So your question is the colors and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, in, in the salt colors like pink work and olive oval white work and, and chartreuse and white work works and 
uh, uh, you know, gray and white works, and, and it's the same down here in the lakes. All those colors work. So when you're fishing in the lakes, and we're going to move down into the lakes, your water in, in the lakes down there, is there a certain time of year that maybe it's a, they're a little clearer than others? Maybe they're a little stained a certain time of year? As we get into the winter, the lakes clear up more, you know, as it gets colder. And our fishing season here in Georgia, you can fish stripers 12 months a year. It's just that you're going to be fishing the rivers in the summer and you're going to be fishing the lakes in the fall and the winter. And then in the spring, you can fish both. You know, there'll, there'll be some fish in the river making their spawning run at times and, and there'll be plenty of fish in the lakes. But, you know, my fish, I don't, I don't really, I don't guide the rivers. I do fish the rivers some down here in Georgia. I fish the Chattahoochee. But for me, my striper season generally begins Sometime around the 1st of October, sometimes it's a week or two earlier, sometimes it's a week or two later. October 1 is when I start and I pretty much end sometime around May 15th, give or take. It could be May 25th, it could be May 1st, you know, it just depends what the weather is like. You know, it's everything for our fish down here is water temperature related. It all goes back to water temperature. And by the way, let me let me let me just say stripers that we're talking about when you ask me questions tonight and we're talking about my lakes like Lanier or we're talking Altoona, we could be talking, quite frankly, we, we could be talking North Fork Lake and in Oklahoma, or, you know, we could be talking Beaver Lake in Arkansas, or we could be talking uh, Smith Mountain Lake in Virginia. Stripers don't know where they live. Uh, they all feed using a very similar pattern throughout the year, and it's just all about water temperature. So the only difference is going to be where my fishery may start up on average October 1. Somebody in Virginia might start their fishery up on September 10th because it cools down quicker in Virginia than it does in South Georgia or North Georgia in the South. Cooler water is what they're looking for. They're looking for cooler water to fire up. Now, in the in the summer, these fish just go deep. It's not that they're not around. They're just 30 feet, 40 feet down living in the thermocline. And you don't want to target those fish, even though they're bunched up in big numbers. You don't want to target those fish because they're, that oxygen level is zero above 30 feet. And so fighting a fish in 40 feet of water with zero oxygen at 30 feet and above over the summer in 85-degree water temperature is almost a surefire way to kill a fish. According to, the, to our what few studies have been done by the Department of Natural Resources, they believe the mortality rate of a striper caught in deep water in the summer is at least 75%, maybe higher. I've read that before. There's something very similar to that. So we, we just lay off them in the summer. So we fish them October to May for the most part. Yeah. Uh, I start my carp fishing in May, May, June, July, and August is when I'm carp fishing the hooch. Yeah. And we're going to talk about carp too, because I'm, I'm interested in your perspective on carp and what you, what you see out of the carp. What I, what I got from that is, is to find out what the bait's doing and try to imitate the bait, which like you said, that's the same for trout. It's the same for bass. We've got access to a private bass couple of private bass lakes that we fish and this time of year for about a uh, probably about another month those bass will target frogs so what we do is we just cruise the bank in the drift boat and we just listen for the frog when a frog croaks or goes off you just throw to where you heard it once you throw it in there you let it you let the, this little green popper it looks like a frog just sit there for a second and then you make about two or three strips by the third strip, usually you've got a bass on. I don't know if they're feeling in their lateral line, if they're hearing it somehow, but those those bass are actually listening. They'll just go park right in front of where they think a frog is, basically, and wait for him to jump in the water. So it's kind of bait and switch for us, you know. It, and it's the same thing for for shad. Whenever you're fishing 
the, the shad kills. It's the same thing for fishing a dry fly hatch. Uh, it's the same thing for fishing spinners. So it sounds like we're all kind of doing the same thing, maybe in a different way here and there. But it, it you know, matching the hatch, matching the bait, matching the retrieves, that sort of thing. I think for the listener out there, that's something to really think about and start investigating. I will tell you, retrieve is a very important part of the striper game for those that want to take up striper fishing. And even even spotted bass, Kentucky spots react the same way. The retrieve is vital. It's the difference between catching and not catching on, a, on our lake system and, and in the rivers too. What you need to do is you need to remember to pause the fly. So when you're stripping a fly in, you know, my favorite retrieve is not these long, you know, foot and a half, two foot <laughs> retrieves, yeah. one after another. I actually like short three to six inch retrieves, two or three, followed by a three second pause, followed by two or three or four more quick retrieves, followed by another three second pause. And I'm talking one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, and they're going to hit 95% of the time they hit it on the pause, not on the retrieve. When you go to retrieve, you feel the, the weight because the fish had already sucked it in. But if you just do a steady retrieve and you don't pause or you pause for a half a second or a second, the guy in the other, you know, the, if you're fishing that kind of a retrieve in the front of the boat, the guy in the back of the boat is pausing three seconds in between three or four strips. Uh, he's going to outfish you five or ten to one. I fish little wrist strips. Like I call them wrist strips, so it's like three inches. It's however long you know it takes your wrist. I don't, I don't generally move my arm that much. I try to do the wrist strips and slow and stop and you know that sort of thing. So it sounds like you and I, I would be pretty much on the same page, but slowing down. And we talked about this on a couple episodes ago. A friend of mine that that's just generally just fishes a little slower with streamers than I do. Until I figured out, wait a minute. You know, we're fishing the same flies. We Actually, we'd swap back and forth on the boat a lot of times, fish the same rod, same fly, same everything. And he would he would outfish me, so I would, you know, watch him. And then finally I decided, all right, he's just fishing a little slower. He's got a little longer pause like you're talking about, but he's just overall generally fishing slower than I am. And as soon as I slowed down to about his pace, that picked my catch rate up, which was interesting. I don't know how many times I've said that. I don't know how many times... I've talked to people, and they've said exactly the same thing you say. Yeah, the retrieve is the retrieve is vital. You know, that's if there's there's a bunch there's two or three things you need to put together to to be able to catch these fish, and the retrieve is absolutely one of those key items in in the striper game. There's there's no question. Obviously, you want to fish where the fish are. We'll get into that a little bit later. But once you figure them out, it's so easy to go in there wide open. Uh, flat out as fast as you can retrieve because you know you're just getting on the water after not maybe fishing for several days or weeks or even some in some cases months and you just generally start fishing fast and and slowing down is key tell somebody that when you take them out at first light and the birds start diving (laughs) and you start seeing 15 or 20 stripers busting up next to one another Uh and you're trying to tell the guy in the front of the boat take a deep breath slow it down don't rush it. Don't just take it. And it's hard because your heart is racing and it's fishing for stripers in a lake is nothing short of a saltwater experience in fresh water. That's exactly what it is. It's so hard. I mean, it's just like rising fish. It's the same thing. You want to just go out there and bust it, get the fly right in front of them and slap it down there. And kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier was come in, observe a little bit, take your time just a little bit. I mean, you know, if you get, if you find a striper in the jump, you've got to get on him relatively quick, usually. 
because they're not going to stay there forever. But it's it's very similar to catching the rising fish right on a hatch. David, you know as well as I, buck fever just doesn't stand for 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 hunting. <laughs> no, you know, buck doesn't. fever happens on the buck fever happens on the river and on salt and on the lakes all the time. Absolutely, it does. Well, hey Henry, Moonshine's got a new new fly rod out. It's called the Vesper. It's a high performance and fast action rod that outperforms others in its price range. They pretty much remove the fluff. They put the majority of the build costs in the essence of what it makes a fly rod great, and that's the blank. That's that's the key to making it really really good for fly rod. These are high modulus nano matrix materials, and they net lighter, stronger, and faster recoveries. It's another thing that we don't always think about is the the time it takes for the fly rod to recover between your strokes moonshine rods mission is simple to imagine create and distribute unique well-built fly fishing rods at a price point that real people can afford blue collar built performance small batch fly rods the one and only fly rod company that includes two tips in all the glass and graphite rods in production check them out at your local retailers or at moonshinerods.com the ups guy was Stopped and dropped off a care package for me from Moonshine today, and it's got a few rods in it that I need to take out and take a look at. I'm not even really sure what's exactly in there. I need to investigate that after we finish this recording. You know, David, I'm going to tell you a little secret about Moonshine. Those rods are cured in a spill. <laughs> then they've got to be I'm good. Kidding. They probably taste good, too, don't they? they? got to be good. Yeah. Moonshine. <laughs> Oh, so let's let's talk about the lakes just a minute. So if I'm trying to figure out a lake, and this is one of the things that you're really well known for, a lot of people say, hey, he can figure out a lake pretty quick. He can help you figure out a lake. If you want to figure out a lake, you can talk to Henry, and he's he's pretty good at doing that, and he doesn't mind helping you. So what's step one if I want to figure out a lake? Once I get past the ramps, figuring out where the ramps are and figure out access points and that sort of thing, if I've got a body of water, what do I need to start looking for? The first thing you want to do is you're in, you have a boat, whatever your boat is. I don't care if it's a bass boat, a center console, a flats boat, or, you know, or, or some of my favorites like a towy, uh, a little towy micro skiff or thereabouts. They're, they're all wonderful boats to fish out of. One of the things that I will tell you is there's two pieces of equipment you need if you want to figure out a lake. First, you need a, an electric trolling motor is a must-have on the lake. Without it, you're not going to catch fish. You can just forget it, hang it up. You're not going to get close enough to them. When they're surfacing, you're not going to get uh, be able to come up on a point quiet and, and get up there where stealth is required. So a electric trolling motor is, is one of the first pieces of equipment that is a must on a boat. The second is having a really great fish finder, GPS map. I will tell you that everybody is making really good sonar fish finders today. And I'm not just saying this and I'm going to, I'm going to be transparent. I am you know, sponsored with Humminbird. And I am going to tell you that I switched from Lawrence to Humminbird because of one thing that they do that they are ahead of the game on everything everybody else is. And that's their Lake Master map. They have a GPS chart that has put me on fish more often than any other lake fish finder. Not having that Lake Master chart is by far and away, it puts me at a disadvantage. And the reason I say that, and you say, well, come on, a GPS chart of the lake, they're all pretty much the same, and they're not. And what they did about five or six years ago, they came out with this thing called Lake Master. And Lake Master, what it does is it allows me to go into their chart. And there are times when, look, when stripers are on top and busting the gut, you know, busting the surface, and there's birds diving or there's splashing and whatnot. Anybody can catch fish. I don't care who you are. It's not that hard to find fish that are surface feeding 
on top. Once you run into them and you're fortunate enough to do it, you know, it's game on. But what happens when those fish aren't feeding on top and they're a little more secretive and, and they're, they're, they're under the surface and you've got to find what pattern are they on? Are they in the backs of the coves? Are they on the points? Are they on humps? Are they in blow-throughs? Are they on seawalls? There's a million different places they can be. Many times, fish graduate and stay around these underwater humps. And an underwater hump is nothing more than a piece of the bottom of the lake where if all of a sudden you're driving down the river channel in the lake and you're in 60, 70, 80 feet of water, and just off to the right, there's 20 to 25 feet of water, followed by, on the other side of it, another 40, 50, 60 feet. That's just a high spot in the lake or what we call a hump. What I can do with my hummingbird fish finder is I can go into something called contour highlighting and set the contour highlighting for 20 to 25 feet. And every single hump on that lake appears in, in Kelly Green. The whole map of the lake is light blue, and every hump turns up Kelly Green. So it doesn't have to have a reef marker on it. A lot of lakes are marked with, they have, they're noted with reef markers, these little poles with white pieces of like a float on top and has red stripes on it or whatever to let you know that that's a high spot over there. It's a danger point. Right. Those are humps. Fish congregate around those humps because bait congregates around those humps. And you're not going to find those humps that aren't marked unless you have a good fish finder that'll show them to you. So one, the first two things is an electric trolling motor and a fish finder. Once you have that, then what you've got to do is figure out what pattern are the fish on when you're going to fish. To give you a quick 30-second you know, overview, in October the top water season starts down here. So when they're not coming up and eating on top, the stripers are sitting on humps. So if I don't see surface feeding fish, I got to go blind cast humps. That's, a, that's the whole month of October. In November, those fish start to, to eat on top a little more regularly, and they start to migrate off the humps, and they start migrating onto points. So I'll start fishing points a little bit more when I'm not seeing them on top. In the month of December, those fish migrate north and start going further north up the lake into the cooler water up north. And as that water temperature is dropping, that water up north gets even colder and the bait really starts to like that. And they start migrating up north. And what's going to happen is, you know, those fish will be on top. They'll be on points. They'll be on some on, on saddles. Uh, you'll find them on saddles, which is uh, another pattern that they get on. Um, which is an area that attaches from a piece of land. It's the underwater structure from the piece of land all the way out to the island. If there's an island that you're passing in between, the land is on your left and an island's on your right, that water underneath it is called, if it comes up, it's a saddle. They get on saddles that time of year. So there's all these different patterns that the fish constantly change to because that's where the bait is. And the bait do those things based on water temperature. All you've got to figure out what pattern the fish are on. And the best way to figure out what pattern the fish are on, if you're not attuned to it, is to go into a bait and tackle shop where the guys are striper fishing, not with a fly rod, but they're fishing bait. They're fishing, they're downlining or they're freelining. Go in there and go buy a couple of spools of, of 
tippet material that they'll sell there, even though they're not a fly shop. Right. And just say, hey, what pattern are the stripers on right now? Oh, they're up north. They're all on the humps right now up north. Great. Now you know where to start. That's kind of the best way to figure out what's going on on a lake. Those patterns, David, change as the water temperature changes. When it starts to get super cold, those fish, the bait migrates into the very backs of the coves. Why? Because they get into the shallowest water. Why? Because in the afternoon, that shallow water from the sun heats up the back of that shallow water, maybe one, one and a half degrees. And the bait is much more comfortable in 50 to 52 degree water than they are in 48 degree water. You've got to know the patterns of the bait in order to figure out where the stripers are going to be. So those, that shallow water that you're talking about in the winter, I've, I, I kind of likened it to when I had a, one of my other vehicles. I don't I don't have it anymore. It was a, an expedition, and the heater didn't work, and it was 15 degrees out one day. And the sun was, was going in and out behind the clouds, and my buddy was with me, and he kept complaining about the heater not working. I, I would say, well, just wait for the sun to come back out. The sun will come through the windshield and warm you up a little bit. That's a very, very similar to what you're talking about is those fish get in that water that's got a little bit more sunlight. And it doesn't, it doesn't heat, you know, the sun didn't heat up through the window and, and make it 80 degrees in the cab, but it did warm it up a little bit. and It, you know, it made you more comfortable. Just a little bit. Yeah. David, this is a true story. When you fish, so I, I don't mean to go back where we started earlier, but when you fish saltwater stripers, you fish structure. So mm-hmm. you're going to find them in rocks and pilings and uh, rips and uh, jetties and, you know, marinas and piers and all sorts of different structure like that, sandbars and, and stuff like that, points on beaches. They're, old, they're very structure oriented. So when I came down here and I started fishing, David, this is a true story. The first six months, I went on Lake Lanier and I'd go into a cove. And on the left side of the cove were docks and pilings and rock piles and trees blown down. And on the, on the left side and on the right side, it was just a red clay bank, just a plain old mud red clay bank. I went in there and I fished from the front of the left side of that cove with the blowdown and the and the trees and, the, and yeah. the rocks. And I went all the way to the back of the cove and out. And I went into, I can't tell you how many coves. And I didn't catch a fish for six months. And it took me a while to figure out the fish are not on the structure down here. These freshwater fish love the red clay banks. They love flats. And they love red clay. It was so interesting to me. It took me six months to figure that out. I, a similar story. We just finished up writing this book, Fly Fishing for Freshwater Stripers, which hopefully will be released either the end of this year or early next year. And Dave Whitlock is a very dear friend of mine, and he wrote the foreword to the book. And Dave had a very similar experience fishing Lake Norfolk. He said when he discovered stripers in the lake, it took him five months before he caught his first fish. So they're not easy, but it's all about learning how to figure and target the patterns of where is the bait. And if you find the bait, the likelihood is you will find the stripers. It's interesting because musky, if I see a mud bank, we're throwing at it. I don't care what else is around. I don't care if there's wood. I don't care if there's a, what it is, we're throwing at that mud bank. More often than not, if you don't get a fish off of it, you'll, you'll get a follow, a look, you'll get something off of it. And I like to say that they just, you know, they kind of lean up against that mud because maybe the water's moving a little slower across it. In the rivers, I'm talking, I like to say they just lean up against it and they're just kind of sitting there waiting for something to happen because it's a little more comfortable for them. I don't know that that's what it is, but. The thing is, you once again, you're patterning the fish. Right. That's what I'm saying. You're finding the pattern. That's the pattern that that muskies like that you found. 
And with stripers, the only time those fish are on structure like rocks is when there's a spawn, like a shad spawn or a herring spawn. And the fish, the, the shad and the herring go and lay their eggs early in the morning on those rocks because they have to lay their eggs on something that they'll stick to. And the stripers will be right up on the rocks early in the morning, blasting them at first light. That's the only time that I really fish rock piles. And yet in the Northeast, I lived on rock piles. I mean, that's where you went. That's where they, they were. But that's not the way it is down here in the freshwater game. So if we got a new person moving into Georgia, let's say they're they're experienced in fly fishing, but maybe they've been fishing for muskie or maybe they've been fishing for, for trout somewhere and they move in. What's a couple things that you would say for them to look for? Once they have the electronics, once they have you know a map and understand everything, once they know where the ramps are and the access points and all that stuff, what's a couple things that they should start looking for? So the most obvious thing is a cluster of center console boats. <laughs> because the, the, Seriously, I know that sounds terrible, but you obviously have found an area where these fish are being targeted by most of the guys who know what to do. So that's one thing. The other thing that helps me more than anything is the wildlife. I mean, I can't tell you how many times the wildlife, the birds, have helped me find bait, which helped me find stripers. And I'm talking about little terns and Bonaparte gulls and ringneck gulls, also loons. We have an unbelievable amount of loons on our lake. And then the best fishermen of all uh, is the greater blue heron. I can't tell you if I'm riding down the lake and it's springtime and I know these fish are supposed to be on points and I'm riding down the lake and I see on a distinct point a heron sitting on that point with his neck extended, yep. man, I am stopping and fishing that point. Absolutely. If his neck is <laughs> tucked into his body, I, I keep going. But if his neck is extended, that fish, that bird is hunting. They're really good. The only bird that I see that's better is the osprey. Uh, the ospreys are good too, but you know the ospreys on our lake are really targeting small spotted bass and brim and stuff. So you know I'm not I'm not worried about about those guys so much but if you see a loon in the water sometimes you'll see one sometimes you'll see eight or ten if the loon goes under the surface and then comes up about 75 feet away and then goes back down under the surface and comes back up another 75 feet away that's a loon that's hunting for bait i don't worry about that loon it's the loon that goes down and comes up and goes down and comes back up in a confined area that's a loon that just found a pot of shad and I will throw on top of that loon. Literally, I will throw my fly on top of that loon that's making that explosion on the water because he has found a pot of bait fish. And the stripers will work with the loons to ball up the bait fish. It's like something you'd see underwater on National Geographic. Um, and that's what they do. And I can't tell you how many times I've not seen any stripers and thrown on top of loons and caught fish. Countless times. That's very similar to watching for gulls and kind of the same thing. They kind of work with the, the saltwater fish. No question. And we have gulls, you know, we have gulls on our lake. And again, if you watch what the posture of the gulls are doing, if you're driving around and, and you're not seeing anything flying, but you see 75 gulls sitting on the water somewhere, not moving, well, you're close. Right. You know, I'm not exactly sure where they're going to pop up or where they are, but you are close. If those gulls are flying around and they're diving and they're close to the water, you know, they're flying... 20, 30 feet off the water and then diving and picking up a bait. Well, guess what? You found something worth looking at. If they're flying, you know, 100 feet in the air, 150 feet in the air, just going slowly doing circles, what they found is bait, but they found that bait deep. They see that bait 30 feet down. Right. So watching the posture of the gulls um, and the turns 
can really help you locate bait fish, which in turn should help you locate stripers. But the wildlife for me is incredibly helpful. So give me something else. Give us something else that you would look for. What's, what's up one other thing? Yeah, so here's what I like. For, if you like topwater fishing and your lake has a dam attached to it, so it's a tailwater below, like the like Lake Lanier has a dam. Most of the lakes here in the southeast have dams attached to them. Mm-hmm. When they generate, when they pull water from the dam, that is creating a lot of current. And if you look in areas around the dam, where the dam is, going to the creeks closest to the dam, that's going to draw the most current. And the likelihood is when they're generating, you're going to find fish that start feeding because they like when the current begins to pull, they get more active. And most topwater feeds are usually found in the fall on Lake Lanier, on the south end of the lake when the Army Corps of Engineer is actually pulling water from Buford Dam. And that works on all lakes with dams attached. When they pull water, man, the, the fish get really active. So you can call up whoever runs your dam, like the Corps of Engineers, and they usually give you a generation schedule. Yeah, exactly. You can plan your trips down there accordingly. We've got an app. Of course, everybody's got an app now that they tell the generation schedules and stuff like that. I use them more to my benefit below the dams. But these folks that I know my dad is a crappie fisherman and he is always, always looking at the dam. I mean, he, he wants to know when it, Chickamauga Dam is pulling water, not necessarily right. because he's going to go fish below the dam, but because he's going to fish above the dam. That helps him with the, the weights that he uses, you know, the size jig, stuff like that. He's he's right. probably into as much as, of crappie as, as I am to trout and muskie and, and that sort of thing. You know, David, for the river fishermen, the same thing applies when they're when they're pulling water and you're fishing in the river below the dam. Generally, when that when that happens, that water level is rising in the river below the dam. You know, stripers tend to feed best when the water is receding, when it's coming down. So you want to find out when they've stopped generating, quite frankly. You can you can certainly fish them. Some of the rivers fish, you know, you need generation to get there are rivers, you need the generation to get the water up so you can get up to the dam. And fish at the dam, at the base of the dam, because there's not enough, there's too much rock when the water's low. But most guys that are floating rivers wait for that. They like that receding water from when they, so if they're, if they're generating 7,500 or 6,000 CFS, they're going to wait for that water level to go down 1,500 to 2,200 CFS. And when that water level starts coming down and they start generating slower and less, that's when those fish feed in the rivers. So any transition in the water level is going to help you too, especially on the, on the receding yeah. end of it. Not, right, right. Not not going lower to higher, but higher to lower. Interestingly, the fishing around the dams. I mean, even if you're not right up next to the dam, and I certainly don't say fish right up next to the dam, especially when they're generating. But the lights off the dam a lot of times will will help. You know, up in the lakes and below the dams. Well, you know, for the for the angler who's first starting out and has never striper fish before i find almost all the anglers down here on lanier at some point they hear or read about dock light fishing where we have these big green underwater lights and just like your bass fishing at night we do the same thing we, you know if you if you've ever read about guys snook fishing uh, in florida on you know on lit docks we do the same thing with stripers and the only difference is snook are really hard to get to eat on a dock, on a dock light. And stripers are just as dumb as a rock. <laughs> David, if, if you go on to my Vimeo site under Henry Cowan, 
I have a I have a video that we made last year. Let me ask you this, David. What do you think about bringing bananas in a boat? Yeah, I'm not a big fan. Okay, most people aren't. So we we made a video on Vimeo under my again. It's under Henry Cowan. If you go to my Vimeo site, you can look at it. And it's it's the name of the video is Bananas Are Lucky. So a buddy of mine went out. I videoed while he did it, and we we put a cutting board on the boat in the middle of the night. We took an exacto knife and he peeled the banana, ate half of it, took one of the pieces of skin from the peeled banana off and shaped it into a fish so it looked like a fluke <laughs> and cut it out. And then we took a hook and we smelled a hook with the banana peel that looked like the shape of a bait fish about three inches long. And we smelled it and put it on this just a plain old gamagatsu hook. And we made one cast into the dock light, and we caught a 10-pound striper on a banana peel. <laughs> so they like light. And, you know, obviously, you know, we're playing uh, Harry Belafonte's Banana Boat song in the background. So it, it's just, it, we, we just, we couldn't stop laughing from making this video. I love some Harry Belafonte, by the way. Let's switch gears here. I want to talk about carp in the lake and in the river, rivers as well. And I know that at your website at Henry Cow cowandflyfishing.com you've got some flies that you tie so if you're fishing a lake or a river for carp what do you think about colors is that is that more important than profiles or is profiles more or are profiles more important so again it's all about matching the hatch and what i have found is that carp are aquatic insect eaters so they eat insects they eat worms damselfly nymphs big time and they eat little uh crawfish right. type flies and so you know you just want to match the size of whatever it is you think they're feeding on in the river. And most of the time I'm using like a size six or eight or 10 small fly. And, you know, one of my favorites, I'll just tell you, I've got three or four flies I love carp fishing with. I, I like a, a, bead, a black beadhead woolly bugger. I like dark flies because the water down here on the Chattahoochee is tannic. You know, it is stained. So I like black. I like rust. I fish olive occasionally and I fish brown. But I really key in on rusts and blacks. And even a tad of orange or red on the fly isn't a bad thing either. And rubber legs can be helpful on a fly. But, you know, if you want to give it that crawfish look. But I like a, a, a black beadhead woolly bugger. I love Bob Clouser's swimming nymph. is another great fly. Another fly that's out there is called the hybrid. It's sort of a cross between a nymph and a, and a, and a squirmy wormy kind of a thing, like a, like a San Juan worm and a, and a nymph combined together. The front half is sort of partridge palmered around the hook, and the back half is just a little bit of a red tail of, a, you know, of chenille or vermeil or whatever. That's another great fly. I know my buddy Blaine Chocolate loves the carp carrot. That's one of his favorite flies to use for carp. And so there's a lot of great flies out there, but the key is going out with two rods if you're going to be in a boat and switching it now you know if you're waiting it's a different story but if you're in a boat pulling around you've got you should have two rods ready rigged one with a fly that has a lot of weight like dumbbell eyes and another rod that has very little weight maybe bead chain eyes or maybe weightless because if you're in eight inches of water fishing to, to carp you know a heavy fly is going to make a big splash is going to spook that fish they are so so spooky. They are so, you've got to be stealthy, quiet with those fish. So the key is really making sure you have the weight of the fly is as important as what fly you're tossing. So weight is just as important as profile. In my opinion, it is. And it, that's very similar to fishing flats. 
you know, in salt water too. No, no question. When it comes to carp, you know, we're talking about common carp here for the most part. That's what that's what we fish for in the, in the rivers, and you have them in lakes too. But the fish in the lakes just don't eat nearly as well as the ones in the river because there's just way more flats in the river that we we get up on these oxbow lakes off the side of the river and we get into anywhere from five to 18 inches of water and we try to sight fish to everything and it's just way too much fun you know the key for an angler there there's basically four kinds of fish that you can throw at in when you're carp fishing there's fish that are tailing which is just like you'd think about bonefish or redfish when their tails are sticking up out of the water and their noses are in the mud feeding. That's one type of, of common, you know, what one type of carp you'll see feeding. Another one are what we call crawlers. Those are fish that are just moving on the bottom and they're moving around looking and stopping and feeding and moving and stopping and feeding. And they're just in super shallow water sitting on the bottom and crawling along the bottom with their bellies rubbing on the mud as they're, as they're moving along. Those are crawlers. We love fishing shallow for crawlers because that is the ultimate to me of all the fish. Those are the hardest fish to catch are the crawlers. Then we have what's known as mudders and bubblers. Those are the easiest fish. A mudder and bubbler is the same thing. It's, it's when a fish is actually tailing like we talked about the first fish, where his nose is in the mud and he's on a 45-degree angle and is tailing, but there's more water where his tail isn't out of the water and exposed. He's tailing underwater. And when he's grubbing with his nose and his mouth underwater, he's actually, you're going to see bubbles coming up from the bottom of the riverbed because there's methane. As he's digging into the mud, he's releasing methane gas. So you'll see bubbles coming up out of the water. And when there's red clay mud around it, you know that that's a fish eating right under that bubbling. Whereas if you just see bubbles coming up, no red clay around it, that's just methane coming up. So we call those mudders and bubblers. And those are the easiest carp to catch because when they're mudding and bubbling, you can get within six or eight feet of them, throw the fly on top of them and, and get them to eat it. They're, they're, when they're concentrating and their noses are in the mud, that's all they're thinking about is what are they rooting out. That's a really focused fish right there. That's a focused fish. Yeah. And then finally, the last ones are the cruisers. And cruisers or sunners, but one or the other are the ones that are sitting up near the surface of the water. You're in two or three feet of water and the fish is right on the surface and he's moving from point A to point B or he's, he's lying still on the surface sunning himself. Those fish simply just 98% of the time don't eat. What's really funny is I was having breakfast at a fly, I don't mean to sound like I'm name dropping, but I was at a fly fishing show probably about eight or 10 years ago, sitting having breakfast at a table and I had Lefty on my right and Clouser on my left. And Clouser is a huge carp guy and so is Lefty. And the three of us are all fishing different rivers because Lefty's in Baltimore, Clouser's in Pennsylvania, and I'm in Georgia. It was amazing to me how the same similarities, whether it was things that worked or things that frustrated us to no end, were all the same on common carp, all the same. And we're fishing three different rivers, hundreds of miles apart from one another. So, it, you know, I learned a lot that day. You can add some Middle Tennessee rivers into that same exact, those, those same exact frustrations and, and tips and types of fish. We may call them things a little bit different. We see very similar things here. Which gets back to my statement from O'Neill Williams, who has that radio show every week on out of Atlanta on WSB. O'Neill Williams used to say to me, fish don't know where they live. It's probably one of the greatest statements I've ever heard that really, you know, and made sense to me because 
here you're telling me your carp in Tennessee do exactly what my carp in Georgia do, which do exactly what Clouser's carp do, you know, wherever he's fishing, if it's the Shenandoah or whatever he's fishing his carp, or if Lefty's fishing the Potomac or whatever. Back in the day, we're all finding same similarities and patterns, yet we're, we're nowhere near one another. Yeah. So it's... That's why you need to pay attention. And that goes back to if you know how to fish part of your river, you know, you can find part of your river and somebody else's river and fish that and, and have very similar results, you no know, especially in trout fishing. That's a that's a big thing. But, but I can see, you know, baits are very similar. Types of fish are very similar. The retrieves, although they may be completely different species that you're, that you're using for mimicking a bait, you should try to match that as best you can. And that all pays forward i guess uh as you move around and fish different places in the country and and frankly different places in the world as well yeah there's no question the only thing i'll say for any of your listeners david who've not tried carp fishing and i will tell you they are a very challenging fish you know um you're going out to catch anywhere from one to three fish unless they're on a cicada hatch that's a different story (laughs) that's a whole different animal but these fish will humble you. These fish are son of a guns. I mean, they are, for lack of a, the best way to describe carp fishing is you feel like you're bone fishing or red fishing, except that you're throwing at a permit. And so we see lots of bone fish and red fish, but they're way more forgiving than, a, than what a carp is. A carp feeds more like a permit. They're very selective in there. They're just son of a guns. If you like a challenging fishery, you're going to love carp fishing because it's so visual. It's all sight-oriented. There's no blind casting. Yeah, the, the redfish, you could almost throw a golf ball at them, and they'd almost want to come over there and eat it. But but carp are, they're a totally different species. <laughs> yeah, the minute the, the minute the carp hears that golf, unless they're on cicadas, if a carp hears a golf ball splash, he's going to run the other way. Yeah, exactly. Wow, Henry, we, we followed you from New York City to Atlanta, or I guess I should say from the Big Apple to the ATL, fished with you in Jamaica Bay, and then up in the upper northeast in Connecticut, and then, then you came down to, to North Georgia, figured out those lakes and, and rivers down there, which is pretty cool. You gave the listener a really good insight on saltwater stripers and la- versus landlocked stripers, and I think we figured out there's a little bit of myth there, a little bit more myth there than, than what there probably needs to be, and I think you unlocked a lot of keys there. We talked about fly types, fly colors gear a little bit water types different approaches for the new guy that maybe is just moving into a lake where there's some striper and carp on the fly we kind of jump started them we've been a long way here in the past i don't know probably hour or so actually it's been a little more than an hour probably we put on a lot of miles david we have haven't we it's all started out with with uh with our conversation about what was jeep cherokees and, and and wagoneers and that sort of thing early on we didn't get that on 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 tape but it was cool to talk about them now i wish i'd have bought that one that i was looking at 15 years ago because i think i would have been way ahead of the game on that one probably would have been well henry thanks again man that was uh like i said that was all good information i you know i I appreciate you sticking it out with me and, and and getting this thing on tape and it was definitely a pleasure uh, I do want you to come up, and I want you to fish, uh, and let's do some. I mean, even if we can't do dries, maybe we can do some terrestrial and, and and that sort of thing, fishing up here for some of these trout around here. I'd be more than happy to get you out. Well, I'd love to do that one day. I really would. So I just hope our listeners enjoyed the podcast and they're staying safe. And I, I got a quick question for you, David. I meant to ask you, you being up in Tennessee, uh, are you a Vols fan? Yeah, there's a long storied history with the Vols and 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 david in the family but i try i try real hard i gotta tell you i'm gonna tell you a quick story before i let you go i was i was up in chattanooga uh last year 
driving up to Chattanooga and I got pulled over by, by a sheriff up there. Pulls up to me and he says, son, do you know how fast you were going? And I said, I'm, I'm guessing 55, 60. He goes, no, you were doing 70 in a 55. I said, oh, he goes, that's way, way, way over the limit. He goes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to fine you for this. And I'm, I'm sorry, but that's something I just have to do. And he went back to his car and he came back and you want to know what my, you know what I ended up getting? I ended up getting two tickets, both to a university of Tennessee football game. That was the worst. That was absolutely the worst fine you could ever give a Georgia Bulldog fan. Oh, oh, oh my gosh. Well, all right. We're going to, we're going to stop on that note. I could go into UT football for, for back 15 years here in, in the trials and tribulations of, of the David Perry and his family with them, but I won't do that. Thanks everybody for stopping by. Uh, you just listened to Henry Cowan on Southeastern fly. Henry. Thanks again. My pleasure, David. 